Uh, some of you were here last week and some of you were not. I talked about a, a man who had been 33 years, I believe. His name was Jeff Pritchard at Sunny Glen Baptist Church. It was once a church named by another name. They relocated and named it Sunny Glen. And he was in this church 33 years, and they retired him after 33 years. They sort of pressured him into retirement. And one of the complaints that some of the people had against him was that he always preached only the gospel. That was his primary, that was his main message, was the gospel. Well, it's not surprising to me, and I hope it's not surprising to you, that that church today no longer exists in that city as a gospel herald of the message of Jesus Christ. It's no longer there. Another church has purchased the building, and it is now another church. Sunny Glen Baptist Church no longer exists, I believe, because somewhere along the line they lost the appeal the message and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the gospel ceases to be what God intended it for to be in the life of the individual, I think we find ourselves wavering in our faith and growing distance from God. If a church, a congregation, a body of believers somehow gets to the point where they are no longer interested, nor do they want to hear about the blessed truths of the gospel, that congregation is in danger of either ceasing to exist and dying, as many churches today are doing, or they wind up distorting a message and making it more about what man can do independently apart from God and lose, I believe, in spite of what may appear to be outward progress or outward growth or numerical growth, lose, I believe, the power that is found in the gospel. And no matter how many times they seek to give, you know, the the five ways to be a great dad and the ten ways to be a great mom and the six ways to really live a victorious life, without the gospel, those things are impossible. They cannot exist. And so we live in a culture today that is much like the culture of the Apostle Paul. He says right off the bat, early on in this text, I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will not be ashamed. We're not told why the Apostle Paul anticipated and expected that people would seek to shame him with the message of the gospel when he arrived in Rome. We can only imagine why. It's not... If you know anything about the the New Testament and Paul's journeys in the book of Acts, everywhere he went, they sought to shame him and to embarrass him, to discount, to ridicule him in regard to what he believed, in regard to the the power of the gospel. Not only did the, the church of his day that believed that they were saved by works, not by grace through faith, sort of thought what he was teaching was foolishness and was not really the true Word of God. There were many who were Greeks and entrenched in philosophies and, and self-help type things, and, and they worshiped their, their emperors as gods, as deities. The thought of sin, the thought of a man dying on a cross for sins was, was just a ridiculous message that it was irrelevant, that it was not something that, that, that to, should be not only preached but received. And they, they laughed and they scoffed and they mocked him everywhere he went, and they sought with every opportunity they could to shame him, to embarrass him, and to silence the gospel that God had called him to preach in his missionary journeys. And we today live in a culture that wants to shame us in what we truly believe is the gospel and to deny the power of that gospel impacting lives today. And we, like I think the Apostle Paul, 
as we anticipate leaving here today and going to the world in which he has called us to, to not only live out the gospel, but to proclaim the gospel, we'll have a tendency to allow the world to shame us, to allow the, the world around us to sort of ridicule, to, to allow the world around us to sort of hear the message that we have or what they think is the message that we have, and they see it as foolishness. A man dying on a tree for sins that he didn't commit, for sins that I committed, that, that's just ridiculous. That's foolish. You, you really don't believe that people without Jesus are really eternally damned and going to hell. Really? You believe that? That's not really morally or socially correct, is it, today? And some of you are saying, well, I've never been ashamed by anyone of the gospel that I put my faith and trust in. And I say, if you have not ever been shamed in regard to the gospel of Jesus being lived out in your life or being proclaimed with your lips, probably you've been silent far too long with the gospel that Jesus has entrusted to you. Or if you seek to live it out and seek to project it or proclaim it or to preach it or declare it to those around you, you will experience some form of shame. They will seek to embarrass you about what you believe in the gospel. And yet, the Apostle Paul said, it is the power of God for salvation. So why should we not be ashamed? And so very quickly today, I want to give us seven reasons why the Apostle Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. So buckle up. We got about two minutes per point. Are you ready? Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm ready. I'm not sure the pastor can do it, but we're going to try. All right? Here we go. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, number one, because it speaks of good news. It communicates good news. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. The gospel is good news. We have heard about it for quite some time now. If we've grown up in the church, that the gospel simply defined means good news. And the gospel of Jesus is good news. And good news is not something that we keep to ourselves. It is something that we share. How many grandparents, when they find out, are discovered that they're about to be new grandparents? keep that message to themselves we got a lot of grandparents in here how many of you once you determine and decide or discover that you're pregnant and it's been confirmed you keep that to yourselves i've seen facebook lately and i mean did i tell you that we're about to be a grand grandparents again for the ninth time aaron and samantha are about to give us our ninth grandchild and they're all under 10 which makes me incredibly young by the record, I, I married a, a very young lady. We're very young. So, you know, it's hard to keep silent. If you, if you see a grandparent with a brand new baby picture, they're ridiculous. They don't keep it to themselves. Just visit my assistant's office and their pictures, you know, about that. And, and, you know, you just, it's something that you want to tell. If you buy a new car, if you get a good grade, if you have some good news to share, we're not silent about good news. And yet the Apostle Paul says that I am unashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is good news to a world that needs good news. I don't know if you've heard about what happened in Milwaukee last night, but they need some good news today. And the only hope that our world has is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only message that can bring people together is the gospel of Jesus. And it's the only message that we have that brings hope 
to a lost humanity. And we certainly live in a world today that constantly declares that they are people without hope. And that's why they are, are pillaging and, and destroying and, and rioting in the streets. They have lost hope. But the gospel brings hope. It's good news. He says in Romans 10, verse 14 and 15, he writes, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul says that the gospel is good news, and it must be proclaimed from the rooftops that we have a message of good news. It is a message of hope. He calls it in verse 1, the gospel of God. It is a good news of God. Why is it the good news of God? Because God is the source of the good news. He later calls it in verse 9, he calls it the gospel of the Son. And later in 1519, he calls it the gospel of Christ. God is the source, but Jesus is the Savior that is depicted in the gospel. It is good news come, that comes from God who is in heaven, that he sent his one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It is good news. It's like someone having the cure for every cancer known to man and keeping that news to themselves. And yet, there is a cancer more dangerous, more deadly, more damning than cancer itself, and that is the cancer called sin. And we have the gospel message, the good news of the cure for sin. And how can we, how dare we keep that good news to ourselves? For the gospel is a message about good news. We can't keep it dry. We can't be ashamed because it's good news. No one is ashamed of good news. Number two, it shares the plan of salvation. It not only speaks of the good news, but it shares the plan of salvation. Notice it is the power of God unto salvation. That word power is a strong word, and we're going to come back to that Sunday after next. It is the power of God. That word power is the word where we get our word dynamite. And I don't know if you've ever seen us. I hope you've never lit a, a stick of dynamite. Uh, but if you've seen the effect of dynamite, once it is lit and it goes off, everything is changed by that, that dynamite going off. It, it's never the same. You can't put it back. And so here the gospel is the power. Once it gets a hold of an individual's heart and life, they are never the same. They're never put back to the way that they used to be. Everything is transformed and everything is changed. It is the power of God. It is not the power of man. It's not even the power of the message, but it's the power of the message through the power of God. God is the source by which that power is operated, and it is God who intertwines with that message and interchanges with the Spirit of God and transforms and changes the believer. It is the power of God for what? For salvation. That word salvation is a critical word because we need to be saved from our sin against God. We need help. We need to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the judgment, from the wrath of God. It's interesting that he says in chapter 10, verse 17, so faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hearing by the word of God, that hearing is the gospel. Again, he says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That message brings about this dynamic, transformational power of God. And when once it is received in the heart, their hearts and their lives are forever changed. Not only are, is our eternal destiny changed, but our life is forever changed and we are never the same. And it has within it the contents of the plan of salvation by which we can be saved. I remember once I was a, a lifeguard in, in Mount Lebanon Baptist Encampment. That's where I met Patty 38 years ago. She came to my pool and I was a lifeguard and, and uh, I had to meet her. And so long story short, 38 years later, we've been married and we have about to have nine wonderful grandchildren. So, but I remember as a lifeguard sitting in my lifeguard chair, you know, I mean, what guy doesn't, when he's young, doesn't want to be a lifeguard. I mean, that's a cool job, soaking the rays, checking out the babes, and, you know, maybe saving some people. It's kind of a cool thing, you know, so that's kind of how it is. And, uh, um, and so you're there, but we had a, we had a problem. We had a, we had a low dive and a high dive, and they, it was pretty deep. I think it was probably 12 to 16 feet deep in the dive. And so in order to go off the dive, you had to swim across the pool to prove that you could jump off and swim to safety. And, um, and so we would make, sometimes we had small kids in camp, camp weeks where small kids were, and they all wanted to go off the high dive. And it was pretty good, maybe 15, 16 feet high, maybe, maybe a little taller. And, and uh, so my lifeguard seat was right there by the high dive. And somebody come and say, uh, and you had to make sure that they, when they jumped, they could swim because she didn't want anybody to drown. You know, that's the objective of being a lifeguard. And so we made him swim. I remember one little fellow once said, I, I want to jump. I said, you haven't proved to me you can swim. He said, but I can. I said, prove to me. So he jumped in, and he went straight to the bottom. I mean, and I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm high up, and I'm looking down there, and I'm like, okay, so how long is he going to stay down there? He couldn't save himself. Because he couldn't swim. Now, I could have left him there. That wouldn't have been what a lifeguard's supposed to do, is it? He needed to be saved because he couldn't save himself. That's the power of the gospel. You want to know the end of the story? I did dive in and save him, and he was fine. Didn't have to give him mouth to mouth. He didn't inhale any water. But nonetheless, he could not save himself. People independently and apart from Jesus, cannot save themselves. They need a Savior. They need a Savior. And we're going to see why they need a Savior in a minute. But it shares this wonderful plan of salvation that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. They will be saved. This message that we have and we claim and we believe and we stake our lives on is a message in which it contains the plan of salvation, how we can be saved and who our Savior is. And that's why it's precious, and that's why we should never be ashamed of it. Number three, it speaks of bringing people to faith. It speaks of bringing people to faith. Notice that it is the power of God for everyone. It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for everyone. That is the universality of a message of Jesus. First, 
Romans 1, 14 and 15 says, Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to also all who are in Rome. 10, 13, in the book of Romans, he says, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What is, who, who is the target for the gospel? To who is the gospel sent? It is sent to everyone. To everyone, irregardless of who they are. And I don't, I don't know about you, that, that encourages me. I'm part of the everyone. Undeserving as I was, foolish in my lifestyle, ignorant in the way that I lived out my life, hopeless, damned, condemned, lost, degenerate, depraved. He yet loved me before I loved him. And God sent his one and only son to take upon himself my sin against God. He sent his son for everyone, for whosoever, whosoever. And the gospel is for everyone. The only, the only requirement or the only, the only restriction is it's for everyone who believes. For belief is, is, is critical to the receiving or the reception of the gospel and, and this Jesus that the gospel proclaims and, and teaches about and reveals. But it's to everyone who believes. It's to everyone. Regardless of their social standing or regardless of their, their, their financial portfolio or, or regardless of their sin in the past, the present, it, it's, 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 a, it's a gospel for everyone. Everyone you know, everyone you come in contact with, everyone you speak to should have an opportunity to hear the gospel message. Somebody said, well, how do I know which ones are going to receive it? You don't. Only God does. Well, when you go fishing, what do you do? You go out into a lake, right, on a boat. You, you put a, a little worm on a hook, and you throw it out there, hoping to what? Hoping to catch some. You're not going to catch all of them, but until you throw the hook out into the water, you're not going to catch any. You're out for the some, and God knows who those some are who will believe and receive and be saved. It's our responsibility to cast this gospel message out to everyone who will listen, because unless they hear, how can they believe? Just to everyone. And so he seeks to bring people to faith through belief. Number four, why shouldn't we be silent and why should we not be embarrassed? Because it strengthens our faith in Jesus. It strengthens our faith in Jesus. Let's face it, you need encouragement from time to time. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's talking about you. Come on, if you got somebody not close to you, yell it out to him. We all need encouragement from time to time. And, and, and it's interesting that this gospel by the Apostle Paul to the Roman church and to us today is not the gospel of Paul just to unbelievers. It is a gospel to believers. Because he says to everyone who believes, to everyone who believes, this is the present tense signifying that salvation is an ongoing thing, that once you get saved, it's done. Salvation is ongoing. We're going to come back later and talk about this beautiful salvation and how we come to faith in it and how it's important to us as we move on and how it sort of weaves its fabric into every aspect of our lives. But there are times when we need encouragement, and there's nothing that can encourage us more than the gospel. 
gospel. When you're struggling with temptation and you're prone to sin, there's nothing like the gospel that can bring encouragement to your heart and help you understand that no matter what you do, you can't lose your salvation, that you're covered by grace through faith, and that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. We all need encouragement from time to time. When you have a sleepless night and think that you may lose your salvation or there's something that you've done to forfeit that, it's great to know that the gospel comes in and tells us that once saved, you're always saved, that you can never lose your faith. I mean, there are all kinds of wonderful truths that the gospel is intended to encourage the heart and the life and the walk and the warfare of the believer. He says in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, For I long to see you that I may impart to some of you spiritual truth to strengthen you. See, the gospel is meant to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. He's saying, I need to be encouraged by you, and you need to be encouraged by me, and the gospel helps us do that. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe it in vain. Hold fast to the gospel, because the gospel that we have placed our faith upon and in once we came to faith in Christ is not a one-time deal. It is a lifetime of faith in which it goes on and on and on, and it impacts our lives, not just at salvation, but for the rest of our lives. That's one thing I like about the Gospel Project and how we in small groups are studying the Gospel Project. It helps us understand from Genesis through Revelation, there's this beautiful message that is, that is weaved in the fabric of the Old and the New Testament, bringing it together. It's the testament that leads us to Jesus, and it's all about Jesus, and it strengthens us in every aspect of our faith in him who continues to believe it it weaves its way into you know you you want to be a great dad learn all you can about the gospel you don't need five things how to be a great dad or 10 ways how to be a great mom or 15 ways how to have a great family just learn and grow in your maturity, your understanding, and your belief in the gospel, and it will impact your individual life. It will impact your marriage. It will impact how you raise your children. It will impact your children's lives as they live out their lives in Jesus. I'm convinced that the gospel is the only message that forever, like dynamite, transforms us into who Jesus intends for us to be. And the more you unwrap and unravel and unpackage and peel off in regard to your understanding of the gospel, the greater and and the more mature you become in your development, your faith. And you don't need all these little self-help things that many preachers are preaching from the pulpit today. The gospel is the power of God that can transform your life and forever change how you live, not just personally, but how you live out your life in your family and in your coworkers and your business. And in, it, it transforms every aspect of your, our lives. Number five it satisfies God's justice. That's why we should never be ashamed of the gospel. It satisfies God's justice. And this is probably where I spent most of my time this week because this right here is a very difficult passage. There are a lot of difficult passages in the book of Romans. It's a difficult little portion of the scripture here in verse 17. For in it, he says. For in what? For in the gospel. Inside, tucked, inside, Packaged away, neatly tucked, neatly packaged inside of the contents of the gospel is the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed. The word righteousness is a legal status, 
meaning that satisfaction of our moral requirements toward God have now been justified. They now have been met. It is a righteous moral position that we have before God. God demands that we are righteous. So the righteousness, notice, it is a legal status of God. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. Of God, meaning that this righteousness is defined by God, not by man, but by God. This righteousness that God requires from us is defined by God himself, and only God has the right to define it because only, only God is righteous, only God is holy, only God is perfect. And so God is now helping us understand the righteousness, the perfection, the holiness that is required. He defines it, and he is now revealing it. Not only does it define it, but notice it is revealed. In other words, it is something that God reveals. To, it's not something that you can discover on your own, independently or apart from God. It is something that God reveals to you. So the righteousness of God is revealed by God, it's defined by God, and it, 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 is, it is measured by God. And so here we see, let me take your Bibles and turn Romans 3.21. This is, this is critical to understand this because there's a lot of confusion over what this text seemed to indicate. And I'm not saying I'm the only one that has a corner market on this truth. There's several other scholars that agree with me and some who don't, but that's okay. They have a right to be wrong. Just kidding. I don't have the perfect record of everything in the Bible, but this is what I've come to understand with really about a day and a half of study and really searching out exactly what this actually says. Paul puts it another way in Romans 3.21. Now, in this study of the gospel, we're going to exhaust the book of Romans. We're going to chew on it, we're going to digest it, and we're going to go through and walk through some of these truths that are found in the gospel because verse 16 and 17 basically are what I call a synopsis, or they are the theme of the entire gospel according to Paul in his letter to the church in Rome. So this is the theme. And notice what he says in chapter 3, verse 31. There are other verses in Romans, but this is key. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. See, there, 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 there was a, a righteous standard that was being held up that was found in the law. And the law said you needed to obey the law, needed to live a perfect life in order to be, to be justified by that lifestyle before God. In other words, the only way to be just, the only way to be pure, the only way to be acceptable to God is to live according to the law, a legalist, someone who's not violated the law. That was impossible. I don't care how much self-profession they made or self-declaration or pretense they could never live up to the letter of the law it was hopeless and although the law and the prophets bear witness to it not only its hopelessness but they also bear witness to the fact that they couldn't live it up live up to it in jesus now notice verse 22 the righteousness of god through faith in jesus for all who believe Jesus is in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what we all have in common in here? We're all sinners, including myself. We're all sinners. You're sitting next to someone who's a sinner. I remember my youngest son told me, he said, it, it shocked me one day, Dad, when you told me that my mom was a sinner. I mean, you think, mom's not a sinner. Yeah, mom's depraved she has a carnal nature it's probably not as bad as dad's but there's one there okay am i in better shape now with moms okay we all have the same fallen nature we're all sinners and because of that we don't stand justified before god we stand guilty we have a debt 
We have a sin that separates us from God, for all have sinned. And we have all fallen short of this standard that God, he sets the standard up here of perfection. And we have all fallen short of this standard. We, we don't measure up. Verse 24, and, the ju- and are justified by his grace, unmerited favor from God, as a gift, not earned. It's a gift. I don't know about you, but sometimes we give gifts with strings attached. It is a gift that is given to you by grace, unmerited. It's not because you deserve it. You deserve condemnation. But it was given to you by God's unmerited favor simply because as a gift to you through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, he took upon himself your sin against God and he died in your place. whom God put forth as a propitiation, meaning an appeasement of the, of the wrath of God. God, of, God put all of his wrath on Jesus on that cross for you. And now Jesus, in that life that he gave on that altar called Calvary, absorbed not only your sin, but all of the wrath of God for that sin and died in your place. That is awesome. You and I are the ones who deserve to die. We were the ones that had sinned. It was our fault. And yet Jesus said, no, I'll step in for them, and I will die on a cross for them, and I will die for their sin. I will be the one. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He became the gift from the Father to us who could not save ourselves because we could not keep the letter of the law. And we stood imperfect, condemned, unjustified, unrighteous, damned for the rest of our lives without any hope of forgiveness or eternal salvation. And Jesus satisfied. The gospel helps us understand that Jesus satisfies the justice, the wrath of God for us. However, notice verse 6, the gospel secures my standing from start to finish. Number 6, it secures my standing from start to finish. You see, once I come to faith in Jesus, I put my faith in Christ. It's not a one-time experience, but it's a lifetime experience. And it, it secures my standing. In other words, there's, there's an aspect about this that I believe that is, that is um, it's a progressive thing because you see that the word revealed is a present tense. It's an ongoing reality. It secures, it reveals this ongoing reality from faith to faith. In other words, once I put my reliance on Jesus as my Savior, I continue to rely upon him for my salvation. One of the problems that I find when I live long for Jesus and the longer I live for him, I get more self-righteous. Don't you? We get really self-righteous. I mean, we're saved by grace through faith and that are not of ourselves, but it's the gift of God. Don't, isn't that right? And, and we come to faith and we stand on this incredible faith by grace through faith and all of this that Jesus did for us. And, and, and it's by faith in that. But we need to continue with that faith because we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to work for it. Don't we? We do. And we get a little judgmental and a little condemning and a little critical of others and sometimes ourselves. 
But he says from faith to faith. Means the way that we start, we finish. We start by faith and we continue by faith. Chapter 3, verse 26. Listen to what it says. For it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the be just he might be just and the justifier god is just christ is just and god is the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus god justified us when we placed our faith and trust in him at salvation and we continue to be just through that same faith we don't have to earn it after that it's already ours and it continues to be ours chapter 4 verse 5 says and to the one who does not work but believes in him, him meaning Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God has another way of counting our debt. That once we came to faith in Christ, he wiped our debt clean, and our debt continues to be clean. It continues to be clean. We've been clean from past, present, and future sin. That if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all that. We don't have to go back and get resaved. All we have to do is confess. And we're cleansed. I was at a funeral not long ago, and I was saddened by the words that I heard by the person who was standing there and projecting what he believed to be the word of God and they hoped that this person persevered. They hoped that they had faith enough to get into heaven. They hoped they were there. They hoped they were saved. They hoped. But you know what? It's not I hope I am. I know I am. Paul says in chapter 8, verse 29, one of the most controversial probably passages in the book of Romans. For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Once you're saved, you're always secure. There's a perseverance of the saints here. That the same faith that we started in and started with in Jesus at our conversion, when we recognize that we are sinners and we realize that he was a solution to our sin, and we then turn to Jesus as the propitiation of our sin. Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned. Romans 6.23, the wage of sin is death. Romans 5.8 says what? What does Romans 5.8 say? Come on, somebody. Huh? What was that? God commended his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not that you might be saved or you hope that you're saved, but you will be saved. And Paul writes a lot to a bunch of believers who are questioning, I wonder, and thinking about, am I sure that I know that I know that I know that I am saved? And he says, yes. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us the assurance that we are saved. Have you ever doubted or wondered about or questioned your own salvation? Lastly, number seven. Finally got there. Record time, right? 
It sanctifies my life. You see, the ultimate fruit of the gospel is that while we are saved by grace through faith and that we are not saved in and of ourselves, but it's the gift of God, doesn't give us license to abuse the liberty that we have in Jesus to indulge in a life of sin. Notice that he says, as it is written, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We started out living by faith, and we continue to live by faith. We shall. It's interesting that this righteousness now that we have in Christ, we stand before God in a position of righteousness, not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that is given to us through Jesus, and we stand and we're anchored on that faith in Jesus and Christ's righteousness, and he sees us through the lens of Jesus. God the Father sees us through the lens of Jesus as Jesus himself, and we are are seen through this lens of Jesus on the righteousness of Christ, not a righteousness of our own, and now that righteousness, we shall live. That's an interesting word. It is, is that we should reflect the characteristics of a life of faith. Our life should reflect characteristics of a life of faith. There are characteristics of those of us who live by faith. For example, Romans 6.18. And having been set free from sin, because once we come to faith in Jesus, we have been set free from sin. When you come to faith in Christ, you are free from the control of sin. It shall no longer have dominion over you. No longer is there therefore now no condemnation, but there is no dominion. We are no longer slaves to sin. That means we don't have to yield to temptation. We can say no in the power of the Spirit. Have become slaves to righteousness. We were once slaves to sin. It controlled our lives. But now we've been set free. We've been liberated. And in that freedom, we are now slaves to righteousness. Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, notice what it says. The fruit you get leads to sanctification. We're not, no, we don't know what the fruit is. I have a tendency to believe, and I'm going to do some digger deeping later on when we get to this part about the gospel, but I think the fruit is a result of the the Spirit of God that he talks about in Romans 8 residing within us and the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit that we get, the fruit that we get leads to what? Sanctification. It leads to holiness. You see, once there was this law that no matter how much I tried, I couldn't live up to it. And I was damned and doomed and condemned and controlled by sin. And then when I recognized and realized Jesus and what he came to do, I was set free from sin, its control, and its condemnation. And I was set free over here from sin, from temptation. And then once that, now I'm a slave to Christ. And the path of faith leads to sanctification. It leads to godliness. It leads to holiness. It leads to obedience. It leads to faith. Romans 6, 1, we've, we've studied this passage for a long time together, but we still remember it. Romans 6, 1, he says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. There were some who were taking advantage of the liberty in Christ, and they were saying, I am set free from the law, therefore the Bible has nothing to say to dictate and determine how I live my life. And I say that's baloney. 
Because if I am in Christ, the Bible has everything to say about how I live my life. Now that I am set free from the law and I am saved by grace through faith, I am living this life by grace through faith, not because I'm going to please God. I'm already pleasing God, not to satisfy his justice or his righteousness. I'm already just and I'm already righteous. It's not to earn his favor. I already have that. It's not to earn my salvation. I already have that. So why do I do it? It's because I love him and I am now living out my faith. I know some people say, you know, you take away this, you can lose your salvation thing and you better live up to the letter of the law you give people freedom to sin i say no that very liberty that we were given in christ actually motivates me to live for him rather than reject him and it's because i'm devoted to him because i love him i want to live my life by faith i want to live a pure godly holy consecrated life to him why because i understand the sacrifice of jesus on the cross and how he died for me and the cost that was inflicted upon him my sin being transferred to and every sin that i commit is being transferred and i don't want any more of my sin transferred on the cross of jesus because i don't want him to suffer anymore so how do we deal with this whole thing called shame let's close with this one passage it's on the screen Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, beautiful passage. But I want to show you something in in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, what Jesus did, he did it joyfully. Isn't that cool? He did it gladly. He did it willingly. He did it joyfully. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Notice the words, despising the shame. We've been talking about shame. How did Jesus deal with shame? Paul, they sought to shame him with the gospel message. That same shame that they inflicted upon Paul, Paul understood they also inflicted upon Jesus. They sought to shame our Jesus. Our Savior, the Son of God, they sought to shame him, to silence his message, and to stop his ministry of reconciliation. They sought to shame him. When he was arrested, they slapped him and called him names. They embarrassed him. They sought to put shame on him. When they put the cross on him and that purple robe around him and mocked him, they did that to shame him. When they ridiculed and shamed him by causing him to carry his cross down the Via Della Rosa on the way to Calvary. They did that to shame him. Those people that were mocking and calling him names as he was marching to the cross, they shamed him, sought to silence him. When they nailed him to a tree, they sought to shame him. When they lifted his body up and projected him up there for everyone to see, they were shaming him. And yet Jesus despised the shame. Who are we to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus? If he was willing to embrace shame for us, should we not be willing to embrace shame for him? So we finish with this final question. Am I ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's pray.